welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado, year in and year out, is one of the most popular units of the national park system. Its rugged peaks attract climbers, its heavily forested backcountry lures hikers and backpackers, and its wildlife attracts photographers and visitors hoping to glimpse elk or catch their unique bugling or spot bighorn sheep. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. As popular as Rocky Mountain National Park is, it's not too surprising that the heavy visitation brings problems to the park. And in 2020, those problems were exasperated by the East Troublesome and Cameron Peak wildfires. To discuss those issues and other issues in the park, we've invited Rocky Mountain Superintendent Darla Seidels to join us. Welcome to The Traveler, Darla. Thank you, Kurt. Happy to be here. Boy, it's been a whirlwind 18 months or so, hasn't it? First with COVID and then the wildfires? Yes, it's certainly been uh, been challenging over the last 18 months, for sure. <laughs> Keeps you nimble, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. COVID, of course, um, one of the big problems was it uh, you had to manage visitation, and so that led to implementation of the timed entry system to manage crowds in the park. How did that go? Right. Well, so as uh, many parks experienced last year, when, when COVID hit, we had to close the park for a couple of months. And in order to be able to open the park back safely and provide adequate access for visitors, we started looking at ways, how can we, how can we safely get those visitors back? So we got an interdisciplinary team of park folks together, started talking with our local communities here, and just started brainstorming about ways we could do that. A timed entry permit system pilot was the kind of the idea we chose to um, try out last year. And, you know, anytime you're first doing these kinds of things, there's certainly, certainly challenges and, you know, getting the staff trained. Well, first of all, just coming back from being two months where you know many of the staff were teleworking and now we suddenly are opening the park and on top of that implementing a timed entry system there was um, certainly some challenges getting staff trained and and um, getting the public informed about what to expect um, despite that you know the first month was maybe a little bit rocky so to speak um, but the overall result i think definitely achieved our goals. We were able to spread out that visitation over a longer period. So in essence, we were taking out the peaks from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. as our biggest surge of visitation. And having a timed injury system helps to spread that use out over a longer period or a longer day. So we did um, implement that. I think it was it was successful. You know, certainly there's there's always going to be challenges with anything that's new. At the end of that year, last year, we we came together and did an after action review to kind of look at, hey, what went well? What could we do better? And as a result of that, we made a few changes and then came forward this year with a modified timed entry system. You know, certainly from, from a distance, um, it looked like things were in pretty smoothly, which um, um, says a lot for you and your staff and, and pulling it together under the stressful circumstances and then implementing it. What, what changes did you make? What did, um, you know, what stood out as you needed to, you know, tweak a little bit coming into 2021? Right. Well, I think the biggest thing was 
we ended up implementing kind of two different um, systems this year or two different permits. So anybody that's familiar with the Rocky knows that the Bear Lake corridor is by far our most popular. It's the it's the Eiffel Tower of Rocky per se. So we said, you know, we, we know we need to address Bear Lake and the huge crowds there. So we um, implemented a time entry system for that area that started at 5 a.m. and it ends at 6 p.m. And then we said, okay, if we're going to do that for Bear Lake, what happens to the rest of the park? And as we know, since we've been, you know, looking at different um, ways to manage visitation since 2016, anytime you put a squeeze in one place, it pops out somewhere else. And so we had some concerns that limiting the use at Bear Lake might have some negative impacts to the rest of the park in such that, you know, knowing we would probably see this COVID bump or COVID surge this year, we were concerned that there would be a higher level of congestion and crowding and uh, resource damage in the rest of the park if we only did Bear Lake. So we came up with a, um, a modified approach where that second permit was a rest of park. Um, so it covers essentially the rest of the park and it only lasted from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. So that system was only in effect for six hours each day. And again, trying to take care of that um, surge from 10 to 2. So it allowed people to, um, if you did not have a reservation, they could still come in before 9 a.m. or after 3 p.m. for the rest of the park. And then we also uh, made a change to each day at five o'clock, we allocate a certain number of permits and people can get those permits or put in for those permits for the following day. We did not have that last year. We did have uh, a different system, but with this one, we found this one to be more effective. And, you know, we also, as we went through um, the summer after July, we said, you know what? we've got a number of no-shows and how do we deal with that? So we were able to increase the number of permits that we offer kind of last minute, as we say, those 5 p.m. each days. You know, I know um, a lot of people don't like using Recreation Gov to, to make uh, any type of reservations in the park system because of the various problems that can arise with that. And, you know, it sounds like having those uh, Next day tickets really um, took some of the burden off of that and, and pleased uh, a lot of people who do like spontaneity and show up at the last minute when they decide to make their travel plans. Yes, exactly. Between between the 5 p.m. and the, the shorter reservation period for the rest of the park, you know, we're able to accommodate pretty much anybody that wants to come to the park. You just have to, you know, plan ahead and, and uh, time time your visit. How many next day passes would you have available on an average day? Does it does it fluctuate from day to day or did it fluctuate from day to day? No. And, you know, Kurt, I don't remember exactly what our initial allocation was. But when we realized we had a number of no-shows, we did increase that allocation, I believe, up to about 25% of the total. Wow. Okay. Now, of course, um, COVID brought a great outpouring to the great outdoors and um, many national parks um, struggled at points um, between the increased visitation and the um, reduced staff that uh, you've had to deal with because of the, the COVID situation and, and being able to house and manage your staff. 
And of course, there have been complaints from many visitors in recent years about growing congestion in Rocky Mountain National Park. And I know you're exploring solutions to that. Um, How is that process coming along? Are you specifically uh, requesting information about our long-term planning? Yeah. Okay, right. So as you mentioned, um, we know we've uh, been receiving a number of issues related to congestion and and the visitor use for um, at least six years now. There was a 44% increase and Rocky Mountain National Park was the third most visited park in the country in 2019. So we recognized, you know, a few years ago that that we need to do something about this. And we embarked on a long-term visitor use plan. We, we actually have an acronym for it, the Day Use Visitor Access Strategy. And we're specifically looking at long-term day use. And the reason why we are confining it to day use is because we've already got a um, campground reservation system in place that's been in place for a long time with our five campgrounds and our almost 300 backcountry sites. All of those overnight opportunities have been under reservation systems in the past, so we don't really need to contend with the overnight use. The day use, however, as I mentioned, um, you know, seeing that congestion, that level of congestion, the um, resource issues, the, the parking problems, the staff impacts, the just a poor visitor experience really helped us, you know, come to the conclusion we need a long-term plan. So as I mentioned, last year's uh, pilot and this year's pilot are helping to inform that that long-term plan. We, this year in May, did uh, five different meetings to talk about what we're planning for the long-range day use strategy. Two of those were for visitors and one was for stakeholders and partners. And we also, of course, included staff. So during those um, public engagement meetings, we talked about what the issue is with, uh, you know, the the crowding and the resource damage and the the, uh, visitor experience and all of our staff capacity and our operational capacity. And then we just talked about ways that we might think about in the future addressing this. Mm -hmm. Um, We did talk a little bit about these last two years, or I guess at that point, it was really just last year, um, lessons learned from that and how it's um, becoming more common, not just in Rocky, but in other parks and even here in the surrounding area, uh, the Forest Service is really all starting to look at different ways to manage visitation with such such as these permit systems. So we've had that initial public engagement. We have not begun uh, the NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act process yet. This is just a a real uh, preliminary opportunity for the public to get engaged where we talk about the park's desired future conditions, um, the thresholds, the indicators and thresholds, um, how we might monitor that use in the future. And got input on that. We'll be releasing a report about the public comments with that. I believe we got over 800 comments on that. And then the next steps really are to, to start refining you know the the things that we've been doing we'll have a public engagement process again Um, that's probably another year and a half away in 2023 where we actually begin the nepa process we'll do a public scoping then hopefully in 23 we'll be preparing a draft visitor use management plan which will you know have another opportunity for the public to provide input and then 
if all goes well in 2024, we should have a finalized um, visitor management strategy. Yeah, I'm curious. I mean, uh, Rocky's not the only national park that has um, crowding issues, if you want. And um, I know there's long been calls, um, the public employees for environmental responsibility almost annually bring up uh, why don't parks set a hard cap? Uh, Congress directed them to do that years ago, decades ago. Is it possible to, to put a hard cap on visitation in place temporarily while you're going through this NEPA process to manage the, the visitor experience? Yeah, I think our, our goal here at Rocky really is to be adaptive um, and be able to respond to changing situations and conditions. Um, for example, this year, we knew we were going to see that COVID bump. So, you know, we were able to reallocate the number of permits, as I mentioned earlier, when we saw that there was a certain amount of no-shows. I don't know that we're really shooting for a specific number because I think, you know, that that could change depending upon which area of the park you're in and, you know, which areas are getting more crowding and that sort of thing. I think we are really striving to monitor the situation and, um, you know, be as responsive as possible to the changing conditions. We, we do recognize that, you know, there there is a um, kind of a sweet spot, and I think we've hit it this year, but we don't yet have enough information or data to be able to identify that that's, that's a specific number. Is it, is it safe to assume that the experience you've gained last year and this year from the timed entry is, is providing good data to help you with uh, some of your future decision making? Oh, absolutely. That's That's been kind of a hallmark of of our process going forward, Kurt, is just making sure that we do have all of the adequate data and research, and we've been collecting it for a long time. And so um, just continuing to get that information, determining what those data gaps are um, so that over this next year, we can continue to do any research that is needed, including uh, surveys of the public who did use the system this year, you know, what went well, what didn't, that sort of thing. And then a very important part of this, of course, is talking to our other colleagues across the Park Service that are also trying these sorts of systems, and not just the other parks, but, um, for example, the Arapaho Roosevelt National Forest is, has implemented it in a couple of popular areas this year as well. So just comparing and contrasting, continuing to, to learn from each other what works, what doesn't, um, that is a, a very big factor in, in how we move forward. Sure, sure. We're talking today with Rocky Mountain National Park Superintendent Darla Seidels about issues in that park, and we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference too at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, 
Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Do you love one-click shopping? With our partner, Interior Federal Credit Union, you can earn rewards just by making online purchases. You're missing out on rewards if you're not using their Visa credit and or debit card. By adding these cards to your online shopping cart with Amazon, Walmart, or other shopping retailers, you can earn a point for every dollar you spend. Binge watching a lot with streaming services like Netflix or Hulu? Use their card for recurring payments to earn points as well. Visit their website, interiorfcu.org, and read their blog for more details about how to apply. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Nova Scotia, 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kajimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit NovaScotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. We're back with Rocky Mountain Superintendent Darla Seidels. Darla, um, another interesting aspect of managing the park in 2020 was you had the largest wildfires in the national park's history there with the East Troublesome Fire and the uh, the Cameron Peak Fire. That really had to complicate life in the park last year. Yes, it certainly did. You know, we um, we had the, the two fires, as you mentioned, and the Cameron Peak Fire started early in the season on the forest just to the north of us. And you know, we kind of kept waiting and waiting for that to, to come into the park or to um, get closer to the Estes Park area. Um, and our, our primary concern was that fire. The East Troublesome Fire broke out to the west of the park. And it took a while, but when it did finally start spreading in a, in a very aggressive way, it, uh, within, you know, 24-hour period, it went 18 miles, came into it's the phenomenal. park's west side, which is our Colorado River District, and um, very quickly kind of overwhelmed that area. We we did uh, evacuations of the park and, of course, uh, the Grand Lake area, Granby. And um, it kind of sat in a, oddly enough, that, that particular fire, it kind of screamed through the west side. And strikingly, it was able to jump a mile and a half up and over our alpine at, you know, 12,000 feet which is kind of unheard of. You know, we used to say that the Alpine was, didn't have to worry about fire spread there, but um, whether it spread through that Alpine or, or just made the leap over to the east side of the Continental Divide and over to the east side of, of Rocky, um, it was a pretty phenomenal event. Um, that fire then, you know, came in to threaten not only the park, but Estes Park, the entire right. area was evacuated, mandatory evacuation. We did end up out of that East Troublesome fire, losing about 26 structures, primarily on the west side, including a lot of our seasonal housing. Much of that loss, unfortunately, was historic. Um, really sad to see those beautiful historic buildings burn down like that. 
we had over 50 miles of trails that were impacted, obviously thousands of downed trees. And so we've been doing a lot of work to restore those areas for hiking trails and get as many as possible open this year. Um, and then year after next to get some of that housing and some of that infrastructure on the west side replaced. So what are you doing with the seasonal housing over there? Well, so we lost. Yeah. (laughs) So until we are able to actually start building, which is probably going to be another, well, in 2023, we'll be able to start building. Um, In the interim, we uh, we uh, tried to lease some housing in the in the Grand Lake and the Granby area, which is in closest proximity to the park. We were unsuccessful there because, you know, resort communities, right? They can get a lot of money. Um, They don't need a what the government, you know, can lease it for. And so we ended up getting temporary housing, temporary seasonal housing in Winter Park, which is an hour away each way. And so unfortunately our seasonal staff, you know, some may not even have vehicles, but they are commuting back and forth a couple hours each day. Um, So that's an unfortunate situation that, you know, has really impacted our staff. We did have a number of declinations as a result of not having housing that's, you know, near to the park. Yeah, that's that's a situation that you're you're not alone in dealing with uh, with the advent of Airbnb and VRBO. That uh, a lot of homeowners side decide that it's uh, more lucrative to put it on the market rather than, as you say, rent it out to the federal government. Yes, housing on both sides of the park has been a conundrum for a number of years and continues to to be a struggle. <laughs> You know, I know up at Yellowstone, uh, Cam Shawley, the superintendent, has been able to um, get some new lodging up there for, for seasonal employees. And I know Rocky Long, as you mentioned, has has needed additional seasonal housing and some new seasonal housing. Um, any luck in, in moving that forward? I know you said in 2023, I believe, that you'll work on the, the west side seasonal housing situation with some new structures. Yes, so that that west side housing as a result of the fire will be replaced. Um, Thankfully, we were able to get the funding for that um, in 2023. But outside of that, we are um, continually evaluating our housing and those that are in the poorest condition, both external and internal. We are looking to demolish those and rebuild in a smarter way. So, for example, maybe we have a two-bedroom house over here on the east side that um, we can demolish a couple of those and instead build a a dorm that's more efficient, more sustainable, and provides more adequate housing for the particular employment situation that we're trying to resolve. So we are continuing to build housing, but it's not, and you can call it new housing, but it is actually replacement housing. It is not additional housing, unfortunately. Right, right. And some of that is still a few years down the road. Correct, yes. Now, as far as the the fires um, and what they did to the landscape, um, how is the the landscape recovering? I, I'm guessing you might have seen some recovery late last year in terms of uh, you know vegetation coming back. Maybe not. Maybe uh, you know it was too late in the season. But how how do things stand right now? Yeah, well, we've been very fortunate this year to get as much uh, precipitation as we have, and so we are seeing those annuals come back. Um, I was just out there last week on a on a hike through one of our hottest areas, and despite um, it looking kind of like a fried moonscape, there were still wildflowers, grasses, you know, a number of of uh, let's see, what did I see? I saw some some lupins out there. 
at any rate, uh, uh, there's a number of things that are coming up in those wetter areas. And as I mentioned, it, a lot of the landscape looks really burned, but in fact, we did do some soil sampling and we, we found that, you know, even though it looks tortured above ground and it looks like the soil was severely burned, actually in a lot of those areas, uh, the roots and the soil structure were able to be maintained. And so, you know, we're, we're lucky to be able to see that some of these, you know, annuals and things are coming up, whether, whether or not we get that Aspen too, we're seeing some of that regenerate, but we really haven't yet seen whether ponderous pine or Douglas fir are going to, to um, re-sprout. So it's just kind of a waiting game, but yeah, it, this spring, it was absolutely beautiful out there in some of the wetter areas of the park. I'm guessing perhaps some of the wildlife enjoyed that too, moving into um, meadows that once were forest. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, it remains to be seen, you know, what the long-term uh, impact and the uh, restoration will be. But, uh, you know, we know we've already seen some positive things already. Yeah. Has there been uh, problems with erosion due to the uh, the fire? Yes, that's always a a uh, an issue once you've had a fire. You know, if you're listening to the news at all, you, you hear often um, in the Glenwood Canyon area down in southwestern Colorado, the right. Interstate 70 through there is closed, you know, often throughout the summer. We are fortunately not seeing that kind of impacts, but occasionally we will, you know, get a, get a rainfall and um, soil and ash will come flowing across the road, but we haven't had anything too significant. I think maybe a one or two very short closures. Yeah, yeah. Can you can you put a, a an acreage number on on what the fires covered um, versus the entire acreage of the park? Yeah, I, I believe I'll get this right. I haven't looked at the map in a while. We the fires burned about thirty thousand acres, and the total of the park is two sixty five. So, you know, almost almost thirty percent. Well, I don't do math. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to take a chance on it myself. <laughs> I'm a writer. Um, are, are areas reopened to the public, or are there are still areas that are closed because of the the damage that's been done to the landscape? Yeah, we've been working really hard, and we've had some great crews um, and a lot of a lot of youth crews working this year to help us, um, along with our Rocky Mountain Conservancy Conservancy crews, to uh, help restore those trails, and so. I think I mentioned we had more than 50 miles of trails from both of those fires, and um, we've reopened about 24 miles of those trails. Just a lot of work to do from, as I mentioned, you know, like thousands of downed trees. Um, hazard trees has probably been the biggest issue, but um, anywhere there's wood, trail retention structures, I believe about 17 bridges were burned. So we've been doing a lot of work to get those bridges rebuilt, to get those trail structures um, in place to to um, take care of the erosion that you were just asking about a little while ago. So um, we do still have some areas closed, and, and in one or two of those areas, we may be looking at some reroutes where it makes sense to look at trails that are more sustainable that will kind of resist these sorts of um, events with flooding and that sort of thing. Right, right. Um, safe to say that it's also brought in some researchers to to see both how the the vegetation is recovering and rebounding and and how the wildlife is reacting. Yes, absolutely. And one of those um, 
probably most market partnerships is over there on the uh, Kawanichi Valley over on the west side of the park. And we've got a good partnership with a number of partners over there um, to look at that rehabbing that that valley. So, you know, we're, we're watching the effects of the fire where there used to be, you know, a lot of willows and, and woody vegetation. Those now have been burned a little stumps, but we are seeing, you know, a lot of opportunity to to plant additional you know willows and birch and those kinds of things our end goal over there on the west side and and in other areas of the park is where it's possible if we can um, improve beaver habitat Um, we don't know you know how successful it will be as beaver coming in naturally but our our goal is to see if we can't improve that habitat because that kind of environment really helps improve the hydrologic conditions and um, you know the water pools better and slows that water down so it has kind of a, a double positive impact of, of being better for the wildlife as well as being better for hydrology and the ecosystem. Are, are park crews uh, assisting the recovery in terms of um, planting uh, vegetation or is that something that you you prefer just to sit back and watch uh, nature recover on its own? Yeah, no, we will be proactively doing some of that for sure. And, uh, you know, we'll be doing it in concert with our crews, probably the Rocky Mountain Conservancy crews, as we mentioned before, and and other partners. But, yeah, we do know that we probably need to be proactive to get some of some of that regrowth to happen. Uh, now, summer's um, pretty much over with. Are, are things getting back to normal? I know you usually have an elk festival coming up in October. Is that um, coming back this year? Yes, it is. You know, the the Estes Park community had um, stalled some of their public events, but in more recent uh, weeks here, they've restarted them again. So we had the uh, annual Scottish Irish Festival last weekend and Elk Fest is coming. So um, I would like to say we're back to normal, but I, I don't think we can say that really anywhere here, um, just from the standpoint of the Delta variant, you know, kind of coming back and um, some of the challenges that, that that has presented with larger groups, but it is it is more quote unquote normal than it was this time last year. You know, it seems like we're jumping from one new normal to the next new normal with uh, rapid speed. Right. <laughs> yes. Hold on. It's a wild ride. Well, Superintendent Seidels, thank you so much for joining us today. It's, it's great to hear what's going on in the park and how you're recovering both from COVID and those fires. And it'll be interesting moving forward to, to watch both um, how uh, visitor management can uh, be improved and, and how the forests come back. It'll be great to see. Well, thanks, Kurt. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. That's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. In the coming weeks, we'll be reporting on the problem with feral animals in national parks, animals like wild hogs and horses, and taking a look at efforts to create a new national park in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. And this week, we'll keep you informed on whether a government shutdown on October 1st would close the national parks to the public. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world 
and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. That's P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.